from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Monday, November 6th. And we have a fantastic show for you today. Two amazing guests. We just have amazing stuff coming up for a long, long time. The guests that we have already recorded, the guests that we have on the books, they're all just amazing entrepreneurs. Maybe they're not on the cover of Fortune or anything yet, but my goodness, they are running some amazing businesses that we will be introducing you to today is going to be our first guest is going to be on the cover of these magazines soon. He is known as the UK's Elon Musk, and he is now tackling the vertical takeoff taxi industry. He's also the guy behind 3d printing. If you've ever 3d printed, it's because of our first guest, Martin Warner. Our second guest is one of the most prominent EV car uh, affectionados. He is the electronic mule guy, Richard Flinch Flinky. I'm sorry for pronouncing the name wrong and an amazing story as well. So two great, great guests coming up today. And I promise you will learn a lot. We have some AI coming up soon and quite a few other guests that are just going to blow you away. Some of these stories are just so obvious. I have a guest coming up uh, later this week who is the, the force behind your diploma getting framed. That didn't used to be a thing until our guest later this week made it a thing and now controls a huge portion of that industry. So anyway, great stuff coming up. And I, I just got to say, I really appreciate you being with us. We really appreciate our fantastic, loyal listeners. Tell a friend. Boy, we have a lot of things going on in the world right now. It's not easy right now, is it? You know, forever we've been told that horrible inflation is coming. And the latest GDP data came out for uh, the summer up 4.5, 4.6%. Now, I don't know if that data is true. So frequently that data gets revised, usually down, but if it gets revised even 25%, that would still only take it down to 3.8 or something. And that's still astronomical. It is us consumers. We are doing our job of keeping the economy afloat, but it's hugely important for your business decisions. We should expect a pretty good Christmas. I don't think we were, but now I think we can. I don't think that we're going to go from 4.6 to zero or to negative, I think we're going to have a better Christmas than last year as businesses. So that's very encouraging. And hiring is having trouble keeping up with this. Hiring can't decide what to do. A lot of companies are laying off and then hiring two, three months later, and that makes no sense. And of course, with the situation in Israel, uh, as I said, times are tough right now, and I want to pray for uh, everyone who has been affected by this, uh, I'm on Israel's side. But anyway, we're out of time. I got to get going and get going with the show here. I got to quit rambling. Stay tall. Stay firm. Fight on. It's not time to give up is the point. We are riding a great economy. Let's go ahead and ride that out. Anyway, great show will be starting in just a second. Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back and very excited and honored to introduce my first guest today. He really should be a lot more famous, and he will be after this show and the huge tour that he is doing right now. I say that he should be more famous because, damn, has he thrown down a career already. Please welcome Martin Warner to the show. He is UK's number one entrepreneur. We we all remember uh, what was the crazy guy. Uh, oh, gosh. What's his name? The virgin guy. Help me. Richard Branson. Yeah. After that, it's Martin. <laughs> and he truly is UK's Elon Musk because of the variety of things that he is doing. First, right now, he is the CEO of a company called Flix Premier. It is an independent streaming service. We will learn about that. Second, he is probably leading the VTOL race, which is the vertical takeoff and landing. Small little taxi cabs and delivery things that take off vertically and then fly through the air uh, as really cool taxis. His company is, I think, leading that race. There's some amazing videos out there. And then number three, he is the founder and the leader of Entrepreneur Seminar, which is the world's number one online learning and mentoring platform for entrepreneurship. Boom, a lot right there. But also he has released a new book, and it's already a little controversial, he says. It's called Startup Story, an Entrepreneur's Journey from Idea to Exit. Martin, welcome. How are you? Well, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, why is it you, you mentioned that the book is already ruffling some feathers how so well i think the the under the underpinning of the story is this company that the or rather infamous company that i co-founded with with, with a gentleman out of the uk the company was called bot objects uh, which we dreamt up in a printing, hot tub right 3d printing and and we got the name bot objects from robotics and creating an object and the company was controversial because whilst we pioneered uh, some very important uh, patents, and we invented four-color uh, desktop 3D printing. I think no one believed that we had the technology. So the media, both the national media, the industry media, competitors, competitors paying off some of the industry media, we had a lot of challenges getting our messaging out there. And we were accused at times of, of some rather, um, you know, I'd say drastic uh, accusations uh, that that were ultimately disproven, and we ultimately uh, you know proved that that we really did have the technology. But the company became very uh, controversial, or what I like to call almost famous, to coin an Eminem song. What was one of the worst things said? I hate to trudge through the past, but you've sold the company now for fifty million plus. Obviously, mm -hmm. you've been validated. What were some of the bad things? Uh, why didn't they believe you? I, what, what, I don't understand how they could have been so stupid. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the thing is, it really is stupid. It, what did, so let's, let's, let's spend just, just, just uh, you know, 30 seconds on, on context, right? There was a hype cycle. It was called 3D printing. We thought that every smart home and eventually every home would end up having a 3D printer like a microwave, right? In fact, Mike and I, Mike, my co-founder, we thought this was bigger than the PC era, right? We thought we were going to be worth tens of billions. Well, that was disproven, right? But what we did find was that we had to radically rethink physics. And, 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 and it was really the application of physics that allowed us to do it. So we created things that were just never, never seen before. So we were extruding. Extruding is, is the idea of pushing uh, molten plastic to create an object on a hotbed platform. That had been done in one color. We had created a, a, an extrusion process that looked like a Sputnik station out of, out of space. And the technology had just never been seen before. So people thought it was not real. They didn't think you could do full color. Uh, there were many things. Most 3D printers had two motors. We had 13. We were essentially building a Lamborghini for a Mercedes price, and everyone else was driving Ford cars. And so the competitors and the media just said, we don't believe it. So we broke the story on a, um, on a Twitter channel called Solid Smack. Can you believe it? Um, and it was full of all the industry pundits. And we said, look, we're going to build something that will work like an inkjet printer, but make real life objects. And they said, get out of here. It doesn't exist and it won't exist. And from the, that moment onwards, every time we released a prototype, a casing, uh, an object, a video, everyone said, 
It's not real. It's fake. If I put out a video of making a vase, you know, watching the 3D printer working in a video, they would say we invented 400,000 frames of digital film. <laughs> it, it was stupid. <laughs> but and in the end, obviously, obviously, because we moved at light speed, and I mean, you know, light speed, um, obviously, we encountered, we, we encountered, I should say, all of the classic startup challenges where I had to toss out the book of conventional entrepreneurship, you know, for the sake of speed. And so, you know, we often experienced like Elon Musk, you know, delays and stuff like that. So we had all the challenges with the global distributors and, and getting things in alignment because we were breaking ground. But we, um, you know, you know, as the story has a lot more um, thrills and spills and some high moments and some very low moments. But we uh, we did get validated. Apologized? Were you ever apologized to? Uh, well, wh- I woke up. I woke up one morning to um, uh, something online that had uh, twenty nine counts of defamation in it against me as the CEO, and so I had to get the lawyers to to look at it and say this is outrageous. And we succeeded in two things. We succeeded in getting them to restate it. I wouldn't call it quite an apology and then take it off the internet permanently. Um, and there was a couple other instances like that where I would never say that we got an outright apology. But what we got was people that would say, my God, we didn't see this coming. They sold to the world leader. What did they know that we didn't see? Well, we had the technology at the end of the day. All right, Martin, there's so many things to cover. Let's move on. I got to talk about, I want to get on all three of the biggies. Let's talk about Flick's premiere. Uh, first of all, can I watch it in the States and just tell us all about it? Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, yes, we're live, uh, live in the USA. Uh, we are the leader for acquiring independent films. So those are movies that are made for generally one to, um, you know, 15, sometimes $18 million. Uh, so quite a range. They're not blockbusters in, in the sense that you will think of them, but there are many independent movies, as we know, that have won Golden Globes, Oscars. They've had A-list actors in them. You know, the, the face of cinema owes itself to independent film. And so what we do is we go around the world to um, uh, Toronto, to Sundance, to the Cannes Film Festival, and many others, Berlin Now in order to acquire these movies and also to acquire from sales agents and distributors uh, everywhere to get these great movies. And they often come with lots of critical acclaim. And we make them available to people that really love cinema and want to enjoy some of these more acute stories. Um, And that's what we, we stream, and it's available on 20 major platforms. So on all the major TVs, it's on mobile, it's on the web. Um, you can get it pretty much everywhere uh, on set-top devices like Roku, etc. Um, we love we, uh, we love offering you know, movies that are difficult to find, and they're often underrepresented. And if I if I go too long, just like my keynote at the Cannes Film Festival, I'll end up breaking into tears because I'm deeply passionate about the fact that filmmakers, you know, essentially you know go starving right in order to make these movies, and then they get you know they don't get sold the dream the right way they don't pick up the right representation and therefore they often don't find themselves to a place where people can distribute these movies well flick's premiere uh has been proving that wrong and also flick's premiere um is a technology media company and it just happens to own one uh of the leading uh, global streaming uh, platforms called premiere stream all right interesting how does that make money uh, how do you Explain how that makes money. I don't understand how there's enough revenue there for you. Is it an ad? It, 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 it's actually it, it's actually a re, it's actually a really good question. So, well, there are two there are two opposing forces here. If I was to tell you that I was um, Amazon Prime Video, let's say, or 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 Netflix or Hulu or one of those guys in that you would recognize readily in, in the in the in the US, you know, essentially uh, they're borrowing billions, and I mean billions of dollars. Right. Look at the 11 billion uh, debt that, that, that Netflix took in order to essentially fund original features, right? Both TV and, and film. So they, they have to ultimately move to an ad model in order to complement what is becoming commoditized subscription revenue. 
So we know that in America, the average amount they spend on subscription revenue is $46. And they often want to spend that on two or three providers. So it's not going far enough that they've got to complement that with ad revenue. However, the opposing force, and that is from the independent film, is that these movies are so underrepresented that they are willing to look at what we call deferring the revenue share model. So they're looking to share a part of that subscription value after the, the holding costs and the credit card merchant costs and then get paid back at a later date because they just want representation. So it's a completely different model. You don't need all those millions or even billions of dollars. What you do need is a good subscription model that's value for money and we compete to be in that $46 just as Netflix and others. And indeed, sometimes uh, I'm up against Netflix and, and Hulu and, and Prime Video. In fact, I think we've got at least 30 movies where I own one region and Netflix owns another and vice versa for Amazon Prime Video. And indeed, you'd think, well, how the hell does Martin win that? Well, I win because all I focus on is independent film. So the way our model works, the way we treat the licensor, uh, the, the type of representation, the additional, we, we do our own marketing for, we do our own distribution marketing for the movies. If you go on Amazon or Netflix, they do no marketing. Your movie just goes onto the carousel and you click and play it as a customer. If it's an original feature, yes, where they're spending $100 million, Apple, Netflix, you will see the advertising. Let's use Apple. Uh, Messi coming to America, the MLS. Of course, there's a documentary and lots of advertising, but they've spent $200 million. Um, but if you're acquired to, to be a film in the inventory, there is no marketing. So I do a lot of marketing using the tools that we have acquired to help our independent movies find their audience and that means i get to make it pay because i acquire them with a deferred revenue model and as a result of that i can earn money from the subscription revenue as for ads we offer ads in our in our streaming platform we've looked at it we might go to it at some point very interesting the 46 dollars was a, a real education for me martin i you know, i live in yeah. Atlanta and grew up watching Ted Turner and have been exposed to the cable model. And so it's fascinating for me to hear the $46 number. And yeah, uh, I think that that's a, a really interesting data point. Again, well, we got to move on autonomous flight people. You've got okay. to go on his website, go to martinwarner.com. The first video on there is about the six man, uh, aircraft that he has built. It's just like the British Harrier fighter jet, right? The same sort of technology, the rotating engine. Yeah, am I, I right? I, I, I love your example. You're, you're bang on. Absolutely. Transition engines. Yep. Tell us the story, Martin. It's an amazing thing. Uh, I want one for Christmas. Uh, tell us about <laughs> yeah, it. right. Uh, we might have to send you a model version that's uh, you know, like an RF flying aircraft, which uh, we're making a few limited edition ones. Uh, so the, the interesting thing about um, eVTOL, first of all, I'm fascinated by eVTOL uh, technologies, which we might get onto later. But the reality is that um, I started thinking about how do we deliver parcels by air? Um, and I actually have another research venture, another story another day called Parcel Fly. And basically, that's an eVTOL. It's taking a drone. It's attaching a parcel, and you'll know that Walmart, you know, uh, Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, they're all in the race, DHL, they're all in the race to, to solve this problem. But as a result of that, I started to learn all of the uh, – and just found myself leaning into research about passengers, thinking about electric, uh, electric propulsion, and thinking, is this possible, and is there a need? Is there a low-cost, cleaner alternative? to helicopters. So this is, the, the, the urban air mobility is the area, and it's about being able, to co being able to create or deliver, offer a complementary way to commute for travel, other than say, you know, um, co your coaches, trains, uh, your cars. It's not to replace them. So, so my goal is, can we put, let's say um, in London or in New York, two million passengers flying across New York City in a year, 
using in the next 10 years this kind of technology. Well, that led me to create Autonomous Flight and to continue uh, that research. And I happened to be the first um, uh, you know, British-American uh, pioneer uh, in the race and, and, and was the first to break ground. And therefore, I, I was the first to release a full-size prototype concept, which I believe is, is, is still... Uh, before it goes to the museum, it's still on the uh, the, the the website. And yes, that uh, it looks a little bit like the Jetsons, right? You get in it. Uh, the, the first concept was a two seater. Uh, the engines face the ground, and it lifts up like the Harrier jump jet, and then it transitions in the air. Now, I think the larger, longer versions of these uh, won't use or won't need necessarily transition engines, um, but we'll see. And and the latest one we're working on is the Y6S uh, Plus, and you might say, why is the shape? It looks like a lobster towel. Um, it's got six motors in it, hence the six. It's sport, uh, sport in terms of uh, the, the kind of way that you will fly in it. Um, it's very fast. It's going to get up to about 150 mile an hour. You might think that's not fast, but going across London or New York, if you think about helicopters, that's fast. And it's called the Plus because it's for six seats. And it's used for medivac, it's used for commuter travel, and it can be used for cargo delivery. And again, you said that I'm getting the first American one, right? Well, you, well let, let's say that, that that looks like it will come out of a box from Amazon rather than the, you know, the really big one that's about 2.2 million euro. I have that. I'll pay. I'll send you a check. <laughs> and so how far has the company gotten how far down the runway are you well to to, to keep it at a level that the company wants to talk about we're we're several funding rounds in now where we're on our seventh year um we've we've mastered the art of flying and the art of simulation uh at the two-seater where by the way all of our companies if you go to any of my competitors there's a few in the u.s uh, we all start with uh, the smallest version and then try to get to and scout a full-size version to see if it flies. So we've bought, we've built so many models from, let's say, a quarter scale, fifth scale, right to a third, then a half, and then a full scale at the two-seater and proven that flies, ready for certification. But that's not the end game. The end game now is to build the aircraft that's going to potentially enter service and get regulatory approval in either the UK or the US, or, or other markets that we're looking at. Indeed, France is one, uh, Dubai is one. But the CAA and the UK or the FAA need to certify our next one. And we're getting damn close. Right now, uh, we, we're uh, looking at the third-scale version on our second generation. So we're motoring along. All right. Entrepreneur Seminar, tell us about this. Uh, it, I'm on the website. It looks fascinating. Most importantly, what I want to ask about and focus on, Martin, is what are your beliefs? So this show, very clearly, we have three things that we believe fundamentally, and that's what we're here to defend. One is creativity is awesome if you're an artist, but 93% of new business ideas, according to the London School of Economics, are copies of existing ideas, right? The uh Risk is awesome if you're a bungee jumper, but it sucks if you're an entrepreneur. Most serial entrepreneurs do everything they can to reduce risk, and most businesses can be started for under $5,000 to know whether it's going to work or not. Passion is awesome for the church, the synagogue, the mosque, and the bedroom, and every once in a while, the back porch and by the pool and the hot tub. But for entrepreneurship, uh, that's not really required. You can like what you do and that's better off than working for the man you can have passion for the opportunity the freedom the fact that you don't work for the man the fact that you don't have to put on jeans unless you want to the fact that you don't have to go to work if you don't want to you can be passionate for that not necessarily the product or the service i will sell anything if it's mostly legal and a little bit moral i don't care i just want to be an entrepreneur right so Having said all of that, my preamble, I'll shut up now. Tell me about Entrepreneur Seminar and your philosophy behind it. Okay. Uh, so, and, but I'll also give you some, some core um, 
you know, some core use cases rather than kind of edge case uh, scenarios in terms of the way I think and approach entrepreneurship. Now, I've taught it for 20 years. I've had over 300,000 people go through the program. And I think where it resonates, and obviously we're constantly uh, innovating, saturation in the market of people that I think in most cases, yes, they want to make a living, um, but this professional uh, development side, particularly through social media, YouTube, uh, and even leadership, right? Even the, the great entrepreneurs that we can talk about that are out in the market today, uh, one that I often get you know compared to, which is ridiculous. Um, but but I would say that that there's a vacuum of of, of little insight in how you get from A to B. Um, I hear all the same things. If we want to be philosophical, then there's lots of sound bites. But what Entrepreneur Seminar does, it seeks to not only teach. So there's this thing called cluster decisions. And if you want to accelerate through the, the startup and build it fast and manage risk, yes, but you also have to exploit risk, otherwise you can't get reward. And you've got to take a frenzied approach to innovation. Otherwise, you, you, won't, you, you won't get to prove uh, your USPs or unique selling points. And that's going to be a challenge because down the road, nothing else will work. In other words, you won't find scalable triggers. So if you are looking to be ambitious, you've got to be able to look at how each function works and take cluster decisions. So what entrepreneurship is, uh, so what entrepreneurseminar.com is, is an opportunity to think about how you can teach quick cluster decisions. So how can you accelerate through knowledge? It's taught in 10 modules. Uh, in fact, it's also the basis uh, for my application and theory and how I lived through bot objects. And it's the core part of, 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 of the book, The Startup Story, An Entrepreneur's Journey uh, from Startup to Exit. The other side of it is it's a mentoring program. And we thought long and hard about that. And, and I wrote... Oh, my God, I mean, ashamed to say, uh, a little over 4,500 questions originally. And I don't allow the team to write any new responses to candidates that are on the program. And it's available 24-7. And they ask questions and they get answers. And the team uh, can top and tail responses that are, that are written from me. And if every now and again, I get challenged that there's a new response. And then I write a response. So we offer an enormous amount of mentoring. And then I coach twice a month uh, where I have these large teams in groups that come on and, and I talk about different aspects of entrepreneurship, but we're there to solve problems, particular problems. Is this about uh, IP? Is this about patent protection? Is this about fundraising? What type of tiered fundraising are we looking at? Uh, is this about entrepreneurship traits or trying to find your entrepreneurial path? I'll give you an example and I'll challenge you to this or to people listening on the show. You know, there are people love to think about when I say what type of entrepreneur you are, the first thing they say is they think about it from an industry or a functional perspective. And there's nothing wrong with that. Or they'll get confused with entrepreneurial traits like customer advocacy, uh, confidence, motivation, etc. But no, I put it in a much simpler way and say, think of the type of entrepreneur definition as point of complexity versus risk. There are three buckets, and it's really simple. Number one, entrepreneurs will go into less complex and slower-growing businesses, and that could just be like a restaurant, um, you know, a little retail store. And you know what? It will be slow, and they may get there. The other one is that startup founders will join an already flowing venture-backed you know, growth startup. So they've had money. They're already monetizing, and they'll help steer the company and help it scale. Nothing wrong with that. And then the other bucket some entrepreneurs may desire high risk, high reward, a fast-paced entrepreneurship journey. Now, that latter, the latter one, is the subject of my book, The Startup Story. And that's what, um, if you want to get high risk, high reward, uh, you know, that's the type of thing that you, uh, you need to look for. And that changes your total focus on how you think about entrepreneurship. It will dial up the risk. It will make you think right at the beginning, how do I vet entrepreneurship how do i vet that idea into a product or service how do i make sure we've got bulletproof usps how do i make sure it's protected and then what are those scalable triggers before i move forward those are critical now i will tell you all three can lead to success and great reward but at different paces and with a different revenue or outcome but they can also lead to failure um 
also, also, I'll leave you on this point. There's, uh, I'm happy to talk, you know, go on forever when it comes to entrepreneurseminar.com. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the Startup Story book uh, is, is really the book version of what drove me to create this program 20 years ago. It's also a love letter, the program itself, to entrepreneurship. And I, I, I like to think that I express it in every way in my teachings, uh, you know, all of the kind of ups and downs and this wonderful opportunity, um, you know, to be an entrepreneur. And I always say to people, um, not everyone will be an entrepreneur, but everyone deserves the right to try. And that's what entrepreneurseminar.com is about. Very well said, Martin, and a great place. I'm afraid to wrap it up. How do we find out more follow online? What are some of the URLs? Um, so, so for the book, it's the startupstorybook.com. So that's the startupstorybook.com. And um, you can find out about the book, more about me and the innovations and all of that good stuff and what's in the book. And you can order it there. And then entrepreneurseminar.com has all of the teachings um, and the programs and a ton of uh, free resources, which we really encourage people to start there is to start downloading stuff and start getting involved because there's nothing worse. You've got to get involved. Fantastic. Martin, an amazing story. We hope you'll come back many times to tell us more of it and congratulations on the book. I hope it sells really well for you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. That's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. Oh my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's a that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. This is going to be an interesting story. Please welcome Richard Fingy to the show. He is the former host of EVTV. He is obsessed with electronic cars and the Tesla, the whole solar technology space. He is a journalist covering the entire industry, has written several books on it, including his newest called Verities on an uh I'm sorry, Verities of an Electric Mule, how Tesla and the portable battery are going to stop climate change and save planet Earth. Richard, welcome. How you doing? You know, I'm doing good today. It's a beautiful day. It'd be a good day for solar. That's so, true. Yeah. So. How, how cloudy does solar, you know, work? If it's it 50%, doesn't. do we still get any energy? You may get some. Uh, it is very temperamental to shade. So uh, if you block the sun, it does not create the uh, phototronic or whatever, static electricity and it does not produce. So uh, the geography and the amount of cloud cover you get determines some of the solar output. And say I have a normal 4,000 square foot house with a good south facing part of my roof. Is that amount of space? Say I put solar on you know, half my roof, the southern facing half. Is that going to be enough to generate the electricity that that house needs? It will substantially impact it, especially in the southern latitudes. The angle of the earth uh, and how it tilts through the sun right. actually has a pretty strong effect. So we normally talk about in North America is the 30th latitude, which is a little south of, I believe, Atlanta. So anybody down in Florida, the southern half of Texas, all the way across Arizona and Southern California, they do get enough sunshine to substantially impact uh, their electric bill. Now, with just solar panels, one thing that people don't always realize is they at times say at noon they're going to produce more electricity than you need and that produces an excess and in a lot of states and under a lot of conditions the excess goes back into the grid 
Okay, and I can't the, store it in a battery for later when I can. need it? You can, but you have to do the technology to do that. And that's the point. That really was really the point of the book. And a lot of what I talk about is it's the battery storage that allows you to net and have all of your solar energy stored for your usage. Exactly. But it's a, at right now it's at a cost, you know. And what about the product that uh, Musk has come out with? The the Tesla battery that I've seen advertised. They have it's a power wall. It is uh, very good, uh, but some of the issues and uh, everybody would need to be aware of. They are very concerned about backfeeding electricity into the grid. So if you have say Elon Musk's system, you also have to have sophisticated switching and safety devices so that if the utility company goes down the road, shuts off the electricity, your system is not backfeeding into the electricity. It's called anti-islanding islanding legislation. So um, the systems are there, but they have regulation hurdles and they have safety hurdles so you you have to understand it's not something you go to home depot buy like a refrigerator and plug in and you've got a big battery and your system is ready to go right uh how long until solar achieves the dream sort of that the the stuff on my roof can power my house and all three of the cars. How far are we are we from that? Technically, uh, in Southern California and Arizona, there are people that have already achieved that. Broadly speaking, across the U.S., there are three thousand utility company regulation zones. So there are legal hurdles, and then there's also the costing. So Right now, if you wanted to power your whole home and have a a good solar array and have all the the proper breaker panels and fusing and switches, you're you're looking at, you know, maybe $50,000. When that cost comes down and say it gets down to $20,000, and then if you equate all your utility bills, over time and the cost of owning your own solar power system is less then that's really when it's going to happen there's, there's a sort of a, a cost factor and a regulation factor that's got to be worked out is there a national supplier that we can all trust yet for solar i keep looking into the industry and every time i look into it I don't recognize any of the players from five years before and no yep. one seems to stay in business very long. You know, yeah, it seems that, like that. they're all fly by night. Yeah. Yeah. No, there are two or three big companies that sell the components. So Sunrun, uh, uh, solar city, Tesla, uh, the, um, emergency generation companies like Generac. There are uh, a substantial number of the bigger players, but when you get into the smaller markets and into retail installers, I mean, they're just, they're kind of like roofers or, uh, uh, construction companies. Uh, they do come and go, but now the component companies are pretty well here to stay. Yeah. Like Generac, I've heard of them. I trust yeah. them all day long. Yeah. Uh, yeah. their generators are fantastic. Uh, and they have solar backup. Yeah. They they have some battery backup now. So okay, interesting. They're encompassing that whole industry. So what it really comes down to is you're you're technically building a micro power plant, literally a full scale miniaturized power plant in your home. So it's not a it's not a trivial matter. It's not you know plugging in a deep freeze. I mean it's right. Yeah, yeah. I get I substantial. I just, I I really want to get there. Uh, the idea of disconnecting Georgia power, uh, 
Uh, you know, that's a everybody says that. That actually, there's, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been in it for years, 10, 12 years, and there's, there's, there was two fantasies. One was to drive on sunshine. So that was kind of the catchphrase. And the other one is to give the utility company the bird. I mean, that is just yeah. what people talk about. They, uh, and it is, it, technically, if you had an electric car, which had a good battery storage in it and had bi-directional charging, okay, you could, if you wired your house properly with bi-directional, technically you could go to any solar panel array, you could fill up your car with Sunshine Electric, you could drive home, you could plug into your house and power your house. So, uh, yeah, that's that, that part of the dream is coming. And there's only there's only one manufacturer right now that has bi-directional, and that's Nissan. Tell us about so, your book on the Tesla. Uh, I was uh, heavily involved with the company, and we develop product out of salvaged Tesla parts. So over the years, uh, we learned a lot of things that only Tesla knew and we knew. And what we built was a controller that spoofed the tesla car so we could pull the parts out and make the parts operate the battery the batteries battery charger different components of the the tesla and elon musk took an interest in us and he would kind of follow the show and every once in a while we would kind of do something and we'd sort of hear a little back from elon so it was uh uh, a really neat time in that industry, as well as the stock uh, went up. So we were messing with Tesla cars, and then at the same time we were talking about Tesla stock. So, and so what is this you discovered uh, that only Tesla knew? What was that? Basically, how their software operated and how they turned on and off uh, their devices which they have uh, very sophisticated uh, software, and then each device receives a software code. And you have to know what code goes to each device. And it moves extremely rapid. So only somebody with a lot of money and a lot of time to sit around and read code would ever figure that stuff out. And almost... uh, Nobody, you would, we literally had to buy a, a wrecked Tesla car with sensing equipment for the computer messaging and then sit there for days on end to try to capture the right codes that turned on and off the devices. And not, there's just not a whole lot of people that would, privately speaking, that would probably would ever get into that endeavor. <laughs> so, Richard, what are we going to do with all these batteries? Well, we we repurpose them to solar storage. So not all the batteries will, will, will go bad, generally. Okay. If they went bad and we no longer use them, we sold them to a salvage companies. So there is uh, one in Nevada City that's red wood materials. And then there's another one in Canada and they take the batteries and they scrape all the parts out of them and they, they, they pull the materials out and do reuse the materials. So it's, it's a recyclable product that, uh, uh, is sort of, um, it's what naysayers like to talk about, but it's just not, it's, that's not really accurate because that's all I did. I actually just, I bought salvage parts and sold salvage parts was kind of what I did. And uh, it's ha- it's happening. And actually, the salvage company hired one of our employees uh, to go work for them out in Nevada. So Why do they keep catching on fire? You know, that is, there is a lot of energy, okay? There is a lot of energy stored in these devices. Uh, the smaller devices, such as like motorcycles and scooters and things like that and little little devices they normally catch on fire because they overcharge them so the device 
and the charger and whatever the sensing is does not turn the battery charger and the electric flow does not stop it. They just leave it juicing up all the time. And any device, I don't care if it's your stove or any, anything you would have hooked up to electricity, if you continue to have electricity go into it, would cause a problem. Now, then the second part is uh, they are they are full of energy. So if you have a grounding or you have a, a, an injury or something that uh, creates fire another way, and then gets into the battery, you have problems. But it's still, I mean, there's still gasoline fires too. So, you know, these these are storing energy is storing energy and has to be treated as such. Yeah. Yep. And so the book, Verities of the Electric Mule, what do you want us to learn there? Uh, is there, tell us a story it, from the book. Tell us a, the book tell us what the story. The book covers the whole history of EBTV, and it also covers just general history. It has the story of the founder of the company. His name was Jack Rickard, and he was an internet entrepreneur, and he was a uh, Navy battery tech on the USS Midway during the Vietnam War. So he learned how to charge and discharge batteries and care for them during the Vietnam War. And uh, it's got his story in it. He comes home, and he had always been impassioned about batteries. And when the, uh, one thing, the lead-acid systems degrade. And the lithium batteries came out in the mid-2000s, and it was a technology in which if you store electricity, it doesn't degrade. And this guy reinvested his life into working with batteries. So it's a really neat story. Uh, we had um, a conversation. There's Elon Musk in there. There's J.B. Straubel. J.B. Straubel was the original builder of the Tesla Roadster. Obviously, everybody knows about Elon Musk. I got a story in there about him talking what communicating with us at EVTV before Tesla was ever big. So it's kind of um, almost like an original gangster back before EVs were cool sort of book. What's up with the grid? I keep hearing the grid. You know, I'm yeah. you know, we're worried about the grid. <laughs> that is the you got it. The entire half of the United States is all on the same wiring network. It is all on the grid, and and I do I bang on the grid a lot. And a lot of people, you need to understand, they don't know how much power loss is in the grid, how much energy is really used. They just keep pumping electricity into a giant network of wires and you see all these substations and capacitors and transverse wiring. It's just a very complex mechanical device in which there's a lot of inefficiency. So, you know, we're making, we're burning all this coal, making all this electricity. And we maybe when you get down to it, maybe 50% of it is going into our devices. So, it's How do we issue. solve that problem? Is that, I mean, do we have to rebuild the whole grid? You break it apart and then you have battery storage systems. So uh, you fill the batteries up like a reservoir, just like you have a water reservoir, and then you use the battery uh, storage and then you just, instead of replenishing the entire grid, you just replenish plenties the battery reservoir that then feeds the homes in its geography so uh they are doing that already in a lot of countries australia uh a lot of the islands are already doing that so for example costa rica they only can run their generator for two hours a day well during those two hours if you fill up your battery then you have a battery reserve and the other 22 hours you would have electricity to use. 
So it is, it's common, but it's basically in battery reserves. So. How, do, how do I survive the apocalypse and why in the hell did you write a book on that? You know, uh, I'm looking more and more accurate. I originally, I've kind of always been what I'd call hot topic rider, you know, and, uh, uh, I saw the apocalypse coming for a while in terms of, uh, all the spiritual events and the earthquakes and these storms and uh i would say if you really wanted to survive the apocalypse one you would have to have a clear understanding of good and evil and 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 be able to acknowledge that existence of life outside of earth and that's a big one and you know the point of the book is really earth finds out we're not alone in space so and that's kind of the direction even the bible goes. so is this a fictional story no it's it's a uh uh uh, uh a conclusion and analysis of uh the book of revelation basically and observations i've made so i don't i don't write anything it's not fictionalized it's, it's maybe storytelling a few backstories but no it's fairly accurate to uh, uh what i would conclude as facts around the apocalypse when is it coming the apocalypse yes you know i would tell you that uh it may already be here it may have already happened the public just doesn't know it so how would that and, how would we not know that the apocalypse i thought it was supposed to be a pretty big event that would be hard to miss on well CNN. let's let's back up just for a minute okay the apocalypse is when earth finds out it's not alone in space okay so okay with the james webb telescope with all the observations that they have made in space as well as what i write in the book the landing on these asteroids and comets and everything they've already discovered life elements outside of our solar system and outside of earth they just haven't told the public. So that's the apocalypse is going to be when we know for a fact we're not alone in space. The whole public, I guess you would say. And that will be a big event in human history. And do they have that, better solar than we do currently? Who's that? The apocalypse people. Yeah, yeah. They're pretty big into it. Yeah, they, <laughs> the two kind of cross over. And I tell you, uh, 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 they're looking smarter every day. I mean, that's for sure. Richard, so, how do we find out more? Follow you online, get a copy of the book. I got to read this one. This is uh, uh, all of my website, richardflingy.com, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-F-L-E-N-T-G-E.com. And then I have a link. And you go to my books, and then I I just kind of set it up. But you get into my basically a little Etsy store, and I've got all the books listed there, and you can purchase them. I'll ship them right out. So fantastic, Richard! Fascinating stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. I learned a lot about solar, and uh, I don't think I want to live the apocalypse. I'm just gonna go. Nah, I don't want that. There's right. still listen. There's still always hope. Yeah, that things are going to be better once once we get through this. We'll get rid of evil. Everybody's going to be happy, and uh, uh, we can survive it. I'm 100 percent sure of that. So, I I I, I don't. I certainly finished the book with hope and 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 understanding. So, don't think that God always promises people. So, we're going to be just fine. Richard, great stuff. Appreciate you being with All right. us. All right, thanks a lot. We are out of time, but back real soon. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now.